Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Frank Mong is the chief operating officer at Helium, the first or the world's first peer-to-peer wireless network owned and operated by consumers. At Helium, Frank is leading the global go-to-market organization, introducing the Helium hotspot nationwide and enabling anyone to build the people's network. Prior to joining Helium, Frank was a VP GM at HP Enterprise Security Products, where he led go-to-market activities that included product marketing, service and research marketing, channel marketing, technical marketing, technical alliances, and overall customer success. Before HP, Frank was the head of business development and alliances at Silver Spring Networks. While there, Frank successfully led a team to establish a vibrant ecosystem for the smart grid and smart home market and sourced the mezzanine round of financing prior to the IPO. So Frank, welcome to the Second Command Podcast. Oh, thanks, Cameron. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Um, first off, I, I, I just want you to kind of tell us a little bit more about what the, the kind of people-owned network is or this peer-to-peer network is so we understand. I've got a, a rough idea, but maybe just mm-hmm. give us a glimpse into what the, the core business is first. Yeah, so Helium and what Helium's trying to do uh, is, you know, I think on the crossroads of science fiction and, and crazy, um, the company is trying to build a global ubiquitous wireless network that serves internet of things or, or IOT. And what's IOT? Those would be, think of uh, air quality sensors or think about tracking devices for your dogs or cats uh, that doesn't exist today necessarily, or maybe tracking anything that's valuable. Uh, if you're a farmer, it could be your farm equipment, uh, it could be if you're a greenhouse kind of farmer, which is which is one of our customers, you might want to collect data on soil samples so you can be more efficient at how you farm certain types of food tea crops. Um, or if you're a large pharmaceutical company that makes very expensive cancer medication, you might want to make sure that the cancer med is transported correctly from cradle to grave before usage. And so those are all things I think that cannot be tracked today using existing infrastructure, existing technology. Uh, I think the first thing we all think about when we're outside is cellular. Uh, cellular is ubiquitous, it's everywhere. But the problem with cellular goes beyond sort of the cost of data plans. It's really about the battery life, really about the ability to innovate and, and create applications in an open source environment with lots of tooling. Um, those things are all missing in that world. So. So Helium's mission is really to, to capture that, what we consider a beachhead um, in a space that is not innovating. IoT, Internet of Things, isn't really growing uh, outside of your home, outdoors, as much as, as, much as it should. And so our, our thesis is to go build that network really shouldn't be done by one company. It's not Helium that can do it. It's not AT&T or, or Comcast or anybody else that's going to do this. It, it's really up to the people. And how do you incentivize everyone to create this network together? How do you send it, solve that cold start problem is, is where we brought in blockchain and the idea of cryptocurrency built into a helium hotspot where every individual in the world uh, has an incentive to, to help us build this out. And when they buy a helium hotspot, they own and they operate it. They earn the cryptocurrency. Helium as a company is no longer there uh, as a middleman. 
Um, and we, as a company, Helium focuses on you know bringing in users, use cases, whether it be at scooters or bicycles to farm, farm, you know, farm, uh, farm, uh, pharmaceutical applications, uh, as well as ag tech and so forth. And so it's like a two-sided marketplace. It's uh, very attuned to Airbnb, right? Uh, enabling people to turn their homes into hotel rooms um, and getting others to come and stay at your house instead of a, a Marriott. Um, Helium is trying to get you to turn your home Wi-Fi into a, an extended IoT network that can go for miles and miles from your house. And you, know, you, get, you get rewards for that. You get tokens and cryptocurrency for that. Um, and so the, the, the individual is happy and the users of this IoT network uh, has, has a network to connect to. And that creates this really uh, vibrant two-sided market. So like I said, it's, it's, it's insane almost, but so, so far it's working. Okay, I think I'm following you. So if, if you were to explain this to like your grandma, grandma and grandpa and you were to say, so yeah. people would buy like a little Wi-Fi device for their home and you'd have a whole bunch of these people would buy our devices and they would all be linked together and that would become a network. And instead of us making all the money, they would make some of the money as well. Is that yeah, so, so uh, yeah, so if you're talking to my, you know, my grandmother, your grandmother, I, I would say you're essentially buying a a hotspot that can mine the helium cryptocurrency and it turns your Wi-Fi into something called long fi that is able to extend for miles away and connect small little devices using a little tiny bit of bandwidth. So it's not taking your, your YouTube or Facebook or Netflix away. It's not using anywhere near that. It's tiny bits of data like temperature readings or air quality readings. Uh, and they're they're connecting from miles away, not even close to you, uh, and you and you would earn cryptocurrency for doing that. That's probably the best way to describe it. And so you own and operate that helium network along with your neighbors and your community, and uh, and you've now created a whole new platform that is de decentralized, that is peer to peer based, not owned by your cable provider or your mm -hmm. cellular provider, mm -hmm. actually owned by you. Interesting. Okay. So, so yeah. your, your big, um, I guess the crux of your issue is how do you get more and more people signing up for this platform before the platform exists, right? Exactly. Right. So in, in all two sided marketplace, you know, challenges, it's always about the chicken and the egg. Yeah. <laughs> we, we literally have the chicken and the egg. Yeah. And so the, the key to this for us is really the blockchain, like getting the blockchain, creating a, a brand new, what we call protocol chain that doesn't exist and making it work on a small little Apple TV looking device that, um, that can operate on like five, six watts of power. That's roughly like $2 a year from your home. And you're able to extend the wireless connectivity for like up to 25 miles away. I mean, that's, that's bringing together all innovations that happened before this date. We add our special sauce in this case is the healing blockchain to it. Um, and then we build this product. Now, the cool thing about this all, Cameron, is that it's all open source. So we took off-the-shelf parts that others have created, we added our blockchain, and then we open sourced it all. So anyone, anyone can now go to GitHub, download all our components, and build everything themselves. Well, okay. So how many of these devices are out there, or how many of these um, partners or subscribers, this, or what do we call yeah, them? Yeah, so we're building hotspots, and we probably have, right now, I want to say 1,400 and change. We'll quickly get to 1,500. We're probably 
uh, adding roughly 100 or so every few days at, the, at this moment. We should have, I don't know when the podcast is going out, but by the time it goes out, we should probably be inching towards 2,000 hotspots in the United States across, and, and, across 429 cities. And how many do you want? How, what, what, what gets you um, like a strong yeah. enough network or a big enough network? Where do you, what's the tipping point, I guess? Yeah, I, th- I think for us, it, it, we don't know. But I think for us, we've created this internal goal of 10 cities in the United States that have coverage so good, mm. it's, com- it's competitive or more competitive than cellular. And so we're just targeting 10 cities in the United States right now, get those 10 cities so covered so that users of the network or people that are testing and trialing and piloting with us have 10 target cities to go try those things. It's, it's funny. Um, like I- I, this is very similar to how we built out 1-800-GOT-JUNK years ago. We said we wanted to be in the top 30 metros by the end yeah. of 2003. And yeah. we picked all the, all the cities that had NFL teams or MLB teams. Yeah. We just wanted to have a really good presence in all of those markets before a competitor popped up. And we figured right. that if we didn't get a presence, a competitor could get a stronghold in those markets. And then I think back to even Uber. I was, remember I was at Burning Man and the founder of Uber was pitching me on the idea and I told him it was a stupid idea because I didn't, this was back in 2008. We didn't understand it at all. Um, but they were going to go after four cities and just get, they were going to pay limousine drivers to sit there yeah. $300 a day just to be available in case someone yeah. uh, booked a, you know, press the button. Yeah. Is that kind of what you're doing then as well? Are you seeding the market or? We, we, so we, we did not take that approach to start. Um, we were debating that for a long time. We took an approach of let's just make this helium hotspot available to anyone in the United States. And let's see let's how see happens. sales go. And we'll take the cities with the most momentum and then go after those cities really hard with this, yeah. this kind of approach that you talked about, whether it be the Uber approach or yeah, the, yeah. Or the 1-800 uh, junk approach. So what we did was we, we, we did a pre-sales in June or July of this, of this year, and we launched on August 15th, sorry, August 1st in Austin, Texas. So we shipped the first batch of 150 hotspots to Austin, Texas, and we, because we, we sold it to just random people in Austin, Texas, and, and they, they all plugged it in and turned it on. And what we did was we essentially used use that environment as our, like I would call it our kind of, you know, late beta. You know, we, we were doing a bunch of beta, alpha beta work in San Francisco where we're headquartered sure. already. Um, but we did our basically first production run hotspots, you know, and truly beta that in, in, in Austin, Texas. And that, and that worked out really well for us. And once Austin, Texas uh, was up and running from August 1 to October 15th, roughly, we, are, we were able to use that uh, time to work out any of the firmware kinks, the blockchain kinks, um, you know, figure out our supply chain. That was a big, a big thing for us because no one here knows how to make hardware at scale, including me. Uh, and we had to go figure it out. It very, very, very difficult, by the way, uh, <laughs> to understand how to do that right. And so, um, did you have so that, to build- did you have to build in any incentive for early adopters on this at all or for the innovators like, to get on? Nah. Or is it kind of the same for anybody, no matter when you sign up? It's- yeah. So there, we, we did not create any incentive. The, the system, the blockchain system itself 
has its incentive, meaning that the way our blockchain works is there are no pre-mined tokens. So if you're no, you understand the world of Bitcoin and Ethereum, mm -hmm. um, we as a company and as a blockchain in the cryptocurrency, we did not create cryptocurrency out of thin air. Our premise is that the cryptocurrency called Helium should only exist if a network exists, meaning the, the hotspot and the, the crypto has to be tied together. And so as hotspots are rolled out and as hotspots are turned on, they're mining Helium cryptocurrencies. Uh. And so, so the Genesis block occurred in Austin, Texas on August 1st, and the first tokens were mined when these hotspots were create, or turned on and live, creating coverage. That's the premise of how this works. God. And so, yeah, and so because that, that's how it's done, if you're an early adopter, you're, you're mining the crypto first, essentially. So you're, you're going to collect and mine more than the person that's number two to the, the 10,000. Know, if you're number 10,000, you know, the, the first ones are going to mine more tokens. So that's really the only built-in incentive and why you want to be first. Now, it's extremely, you know, you, you got to go through extreme pain with us, meaning some of the onboarding things don't work well. We've got to support iOS and Android on the app side. So there's a lot of sort of firmware application, you know, blockchain pieces that will kind of pick up here and there that require updates. You know, so early adopters have to feel the pain of being first, like a, like a guinea pig. Uh, but but when it works and, and there's, it's smooth, they're mining cryptocurrency first as well. So, you know, there's, there's pluses and minuses to all these things. But Now, what am I not getting on and last thing on the technical and then we'll go into how you built the business, but sure. you guys are selling these hotspot devices that are beautiful. Yes. Um, oh, thank you. What's the, but what was it you were saying that is kind of open source that you're downloading? Is that the, something else that the user has to do or is it just plug and play? It's plug and play. There's the, there's the hotspot and the interface to the hotspot is, is on, a, uh, on an application, on, a, on an iPhone app or Android app. And those two things are paired together. Your account is on your, on your phone essentially. Uh, and the healing hotspot, whether it's your configuration or it's the account that holds the tokens that are mined from your hotspot, those things are how it interfaces with each other. Uh, so there's, there's not a whole lot for the user to do. If you buy a hotspot, it, it's as simple as plugging something into the wall. Yeah, put it by the window so it has it can see outside, and and then using your phone app and following the directions, and within a few minutes you're up and running. And that's it. And then what are people making? How much are they making off this, or how do they make money off this? <laughs> yeah, great question. And so the interesting thing is we can't we can't answer that question. Um, the Security Exchange Commission has been fairly unclear about how to treat cryptocurrency and what's considered a utility versus a security. And so as a company, we are very conservative and we can't talk about ROI. We can't, we can't use that as an incentive to ask anyone to buy this. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's just, that's it. So I, I, I cannot answer you or anyone else to ask me, hey, what, what's, what's the ROI, how, how do I, how much money do I make or what's the upside? Um, the answer is I, I don't know and that's the truth. What, and that, that actually was something we asked our, 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 our customers early on. We, we asked about 280 customers, why did you buy this? There is no, we don't claim any sort of future gains. We don't talk about you know, the promise of future gains. 
So why, why would you do this, right? As a consumer, why would you pay $495 not knowing that information? Because those are logical questions. Mm-hmm. And the number one answer, which is interesting, number one answer was this. Everyone that purchased, not everyone, most, majority, vast majority said, we're buying this because we want to own and operate a future telco. They want to be, they want to be or have the potential to become the next decentralized AT&T. And that, that's when I kind of, an aha moment happened for me, which was this greater cause, this vision of creating a peer-to-peer network to connect IoT things and putting it in the hands of the individual uh, is very powerful. And in a sense of ownership, the sense that you can be an entrepreneur by having a, a little hotspot automatically doing its own thing by, you know, at the window of your home from your living room, that, that's, that's sort of unheard of. <laughs> but yet the, the broader vision of creating this network together, we call it the people's network, uh, really resonated with a lot of people, at so least early that- adopters. Yes, it sounds like the innovators, early adopters were all doing this less to make money and more just to be a part of something that had a greater purpose. That's right. It's like they'd rather give their money to Helium than to give it to the government or give it to a big telco. Certainly, I think the sense of ownership, right? The sense that you can own a piece of a network for $4.95 and be in early, that's, that was a huge draw for a lot of early adopters. It's really interesting. All right. Um, so how did you, how did you get involved in the company and, and what do you think it was that, that attracted you to helium? You know, I think it, yeah, it, it's, it's one of those things where you probably hear this before. It was a series of missteps and this opportunity came up, <laughs> you know, I wasn't actively looking to join a startup like helium. In fact, I, you know, prior to helium, just prior I was at two companies. I was a CMO at Hortonworks for like two months. And then before Hortonworks, I was at Palo Alto Networks as their senior VP of product marketing for two years. Um, And so the mistake really came from me thinking that I wanted to be a CMO. And, you know, I was done sort of being the the product marketer or the second in command to the CMO. and that rise in that corporate ladder was what I thought was the right thing to do. And so I jumped ship from Palo Alto Networks into a Hortonworks job, not really doing enough homework, I would say, on the situation there. Okay. And I went into a situation that was incredibly unstable between the executive team there. And as a result of that, after two months, you know, I... I had to eject. It was not the right place for me. That's but it's, it's, it is what it is. And, you know, from that point on, because I ejected, I was sitting around doing nothing. So I, I, what I did was I started talking to a lot, a lot of folks and did, did the networking and did the due diligence, which I should have done prior to leaving Palos and Networks, right? And, and I uh, talked to like 40-some-odd companies, maybe 50, a lot of them uh, came through introductions from Vinod Kosla at Kosla Ventures. And Helium was the first company I, t- I spoke with, actually, uh, mm. through that process. So Helium was number one that I spoke to. I went through 39 other, other interviews, conversations, coffees, and came back around to Helium. Um, and what's interesting is when I first met with Amir Halim, our, our co-founder, CEO, after about five, six minutes of talking to him about IoT and 
trying to build networks, I, I kind of, I, I paused and I said, hey, Amir, I really like you actually. You and I have this weird positive energy. We are different in that he's very technical. Um, I'm very go-to-market oriented, but we had common interests. We both love video games. We both grew up in the, in the 90s and 2000s playing Quake. Uh, he, he was a Quake champ. I wasn't, so he's clearly better than me. We love like racing cars. He, he builds Toyota Supras. You know, he's just sort of always sort of one better than me. He's more technical. He's more deep. And, and we just kind of rifted on that for a long time. And finally I said, Hey man, I really like you. Uh, probably could like hang out with you and be your buddy. I don't think I'm the right guy. You're looking for a COO or president to help you drive this thing. I, I, I've never done, I've never ran sales, right? The, the sales is a big component of this. Mm. I could do the marketing piece, but I don't have a background in IOT. I, I don't even know if I'm interested in IOT. I wouldn't even know where to start. So sure. I'm just going to save us the, the rest of the 45 minutes here and just tell you I'm the wrong guy. But I know a lot of people and I was at Silver Spring Networks, which is all about smart metering using IOT radio waves. I, I bet you, I should introduce you to the co-founder, Eric Dresselhaus. I'll, I'll introduce you to him. I work for him. He's a great guy. He, he's probably the right guy for this. And I've got probably two or three other names that I can think of. And he's like, oh, Oh, okay, great. Thanks. You know, yes, send them my way. <laughs> so we just continued to just chat about our personal lives. He's got, you know, at the time he had one child with a baby on the way and, and I had two kids and we just talked about all kinds of stuff and had a really like fantastic conversation, shook hands. I left. Then I went on an interview with like, you know, 10 to 12 companies. He texts me, say, Hey, let's meet up for a drink. <laughs> got together for a drink. He's pitching me, pitching me, and I'm like, hey, I, did you talk to the guys I, I sent you? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I talked to them. Great. What did they say? They said they sh I should hire you. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm here. That's not, that's not right. You should hire them, not me. He's like, no, no, they said you're the right person for the job. I'm like, okay, so I, I, I say, look, in here, t tell me, why do you insist that I am the right guy? I just told you. I'm telling you I'm the wrong guy. He says, I think you're the right guy because one, you have self-awareness. When you don't know something, you're honest about it. And I want someone that I can trust that's honest. Mm. Uh, you clearly, by trying to just like call it out, uh, a spade a spade, I appreciate that. Um, and two, it's no one, no one's an expert in IoT. Nobody knows what's really the right path. If someone knew that, this thing would have blown up and become this whatever hundreds of billion dollar market that it promised to be, you know, 10 years ago, sure. which it still hasn't. Right. So clearly no one here is an expert. And because you know, you're not an expert, you won't be afraid to try anything. And in the world of startups, you have to try anything. You have to have that mentality. And I was like, Oh, Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. You know, I've sort of been at these large companies for too long and become one of the corporate drones that doesn't want to try anything. So I didn't, I didn't see that. It's kind of blind to it. And so we had drinks. I walked away. Yeah, Amir, look, let's hang out sometime. But I, 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 I'm not convinced. <laughs> I, I still don't think I'm the right guy. So I go and I interview with like 20 more companies. And every time I was talking to another company, I was looking for the chemistry and the click that I had with Amir. So I was talking to you know, early stage uh, cybersecurity startups to late stage cybersecurity startups with companies that are about to go public could be very lucrative to, to go and jump into that situation. But I, I did not see 
the spark that Amir and I had in any of these other interviews. Not, not that they're bad people or they're wrong. It's just that it did, we didn't click in that way or, or the, the phase and situation of the company did not allow for it to happen in that way. The culture wasn't, wasn't at that phase possibly, right? Yeah. And so uh, he, Amir texted me again, hey, let's, let's grab a drink. <laughs> this, time, this time going into this you know, third meeting with him, and it's now roughly two or three months in through the process. I've already spoken with the 49 others. I, I was pretty much, I knew. I knew what I was looking for now wasn't necessarily a company. What I was looking for was a group of people that I would like and enjoy working with. And it really, the, the mission and vision was important, but the people were more important to me than the mission and vision. Because if I leverage what I knew in cybersecurity, I should just join a, a pre-IPO company and go make a ton of money. Sure. I didn't want to do that. It's, it's really interesting that you actually kept looking and, and kept getting drawn back in. And I love that he actually brought you in partially because he loved that you were truthful. And I yes. think that seems to be something the CEO is always looking for in a second in command is someone they can trust and someone who will tell them what nobody else wants to tell them. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so how do you maintain that balance between, you know, you must have to tell the CEO often there's, you know, he's got a crazy idea or that's the wrong way or you disagree. Um, yeah. how, have you, how have you found that balance? I, I think it, it's, you know, and for, for folks listening, it's not, um, it's not formulated. You can't, I don't think you can manufacture this. Um, and the reason I say that because a, a lot of pieces have to align. You as an individual in that role or, or interviewing for that role, you have to be in a state in your life, in your career, where you're willing to be honest with yourself. Um, and, I, and I heard this early on in my career. You, know, you have to be truthful to yourself. You have to do what you're passionate about, and you have to, you have to do it as yourself. You can't pretend to be somebody else. And it's very difficult for even for me early on in my career, early on in life, to have the confidence to be honest with myself. It's not easy, right? You, you always sort of strive to be someone else. You want to become like somebody else. You know, I, I worked in semantic when uh, John, John Thompson or JWT was CEO. I mean, he inspired me. I wanted to be like John Thompson, amazing leader. Uh, I met guys like Enrique Salem, who was CEO of uh, Brightmail and then became CEO of Symantec later on. Another amazing character, just an amazing guy, super smart. Um, and I wanted to be like them. I think it took me a while, maybe till I was mid-30s or late-30s with two kids now in tow to realize that I, I don't need to be anyone else. I just need to be me. Yourself. Right? Yeah. I, you got to be yourself. I think some folks come to those realizations uh, a lot sooner or mature there a lot sooner. Some, some it takes like me, it takes like maybe I'm a late bloomer. I don't know. It takes me a while to get there. But once I, once I knew who I was and what I, what I wanted to do or how I wanted to be, um, then, then it became a lot easier and connecting with people like Amir became a lot easier because I had no, nothing to prove. I didn't feel like I had to be somebody or I had to prove myself hmm. in a certain way. And so if I could just be myself and I can always be that way a hundred percent of the time with my peers, with the entire team, with Amir, it's a lot easier. He knows exactly who I am. I know exactly who he is. He's a little younger than me. He's already there. He's very mature. He, he knows who he is. He is himself. He never wavers from that. And he's, he is 
steadfast on his beliefs. He never wavers. And, and those are some traits that I see with entrepreneurs that succeed. They just do not care what other people think. If they believe it, they go with it. And so I, I just have to, you know, be that way. I have to be who I am and just be honest in every situation. And if you're just yourself and honest in every situation, it's hard to fake it. You can't fake that. You can't fake it. Yeah. No, you can't. You, you won't slip. And so you're going to be an ass. I'm an ass sometimes. I'm an idiot. I foot and mouth all the time, but it's okay. Everyone here accepts that. Yeah, I think, it's, is, I think it's be better. I think it's better to just speak from the heart and re- like mean what you say and say what you mean because then yeah. it resonates with people. When you're when we're being political or being very calculated, people are always wondering what's really going on, right? It's almost the same as dress code. Like when you're dressing oh, yeah. up to be at work, people are wondering what's really on beneath all that layer. I heard a funny funny quote years ago. It's that be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. Um, <laughs> so, t- how many staff have you guys got at Helium right now? So we are roughly around, I want to say 30 to 31 people right now. And we're hiring, probably bringing on board like five or six uh, more. We just, we're just in sort of in this path of hiring right now. So we're still small, I would say. How are you funded? Um, We're funded through venture capital. So we've got three rounds of funding under our belt. Uh, Vino Coastal Coastal Ventures led Series A, Google Ventures led Series B. And then most recently, Union Square Ventures and Multicoin Capital led our Series C. Wow. So how much have you raised total then? I want to say roughly $50 million or so. So not an insignificant amount of money. No. And it's been six years. Um, and I, I would say uh, outsider looking in, not understanding hardware, it seems like a lot of money over six years and maybe not a lot of traction. But now that I've been in it for two years, the hardware is incredibly difficult to to figure out. Mm. And then once you figure out the hardware, getting the firmware and the user experience, the the user interface right takes a couple of years. So the blockchain uh, took us about two years along with the apps and the connection, the full stack on top of the hardware. But it took it took it's taken six years to get the hardware right. Now, the whole, I've been, in, been involved in crypto for five or six years. I think I first yep. said that I would accept payment um, for coaching and speaking back in Bitcoin. I think it was 2014. And people wow. thought, I, people, yeah, it was 400 bucks and people thought I was crazy. I'm like, no, totally take it. But I used to run a digital currency company 20 years ago. I had a private currency that um, we had Bose Stereo, Hard Rock Cafe, Starwood Hotels, Avis Renicar. They all accepted our digital currency instead of the US dollar. And that was 99 and 2000. We sold the company in March 2000. Um, and it was a barter company, but we created an electronic debit and credit system to facilitate multi. So I understand it, right? I get it. Um, yeah. We actually met with Goldman Sachs back in 99 and they said, wait a second. So your digital <laughs> currency is not backed by the US dollar. And we went, no. And they went, well, how, <laughs> how is their value? And I, so I started explaining. They go, holy fuck, you're a country. I'm like, pretty much. We're. <laughs> But we had to we had to account for it at 1099B with all of our clients and um, anyway so I, I get the industry I get the digital currency side but the trend has has kind of worn off I mean even today I think Bitcoin just fell back to like seven thousand again um, the trend has come off a little bit mm-hmm. I think for now I don't think it's a forever um, has that hurt you has it distracted you what's the um, What's the thoughts around the leadership team and the employees and investors sure. related to the digital space? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because we are not digital currency people at all. Um, 
I, you know, I, I knew nothing about Bitcoin prior to joining the company. So we, we are wireless technology, hardware and firmware people, peer-to-peer uh, -peer, uh, networking people. That, that's the makeup of, of the company. And so we don't get into the, we, we don't track or follow where, where Bitcoin is, where Ethereum is. We don't, we don't know if we should. We certainly don't care, but because naturally we're not that way. Yeah, we do care a lot about wireless technology. We do care a lot about protocols. We do. We're very passionate about open source. Those are the things that drive us. And so I think I think we're like an oddity in that cryptocurrency world that you speak of because we're not. I don't think we're recognized. I don't think anyone would know who we are. I'm not I'm not clear. Nor do we really focus a lot on of our attention on that. And maybe maybe that's a mistake. I, I don't know yet. Um, but what we do really focus a lot of our time on right now is customer satisfaction, user experience, because we have, you know, a few thousand customers now that have purchased our healing hotspots. Um, some, some are, you know, going through the installation and some are, you know, going through the experience great. Some are having hiccups. And so we're, you know, like I spend my time when I'm not, you know, talking to you or talking to a customer, I'm on support, our, our intercom support line. I'm answering support questions. I am taking escalation and I, you know, a week ago I did a house call. Someone in San Francisco had a hard time with their hotspot. We've never seen anything like it before because um, we thought the hardware was good, but yet his problems seem like a hardware issue. Huh. And so he wanted, he wanted a refund. And I said to him, Hey, um, if, if you don't mind, cause you're in San Francisco, instead of a refund, would you mind if I came with an engineer and we replaced your hotspot with a brand new one? And we're going to sit there, watch you onboard it, walk you through it, and then we're going to monitor it for a week to make sure it's fine. That's like, cool. Would, would you? Are you okay with that? I mean, well, I'm lucky. The guy's like, of course. Well, only well, only in the Bay Area <laughs> would anybody want to do that because then they have a story in five years to go. Yeah, back in the day, they came to my yeah. to plug it in. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, sure. That, that's not what I'm thinking about. I'm not thinking that far ahead. Um, but I, I just wanted to make sure we we as a company understand that customer care and customer success is probably the number one thing that we should worry about. Everything else, to your point, is kind of like noise. It doesn't matter. And so that's, that's all we do here. And I, and I want to I wanna make sure that I don't just say it, but I lead by example. So I'll do house calls, if that's what it takes, to keep a customer. That's cool. Talk about the, um, the competitiveness of being in the Bay Area. I mean, we've got, you know, yeah. probably the most competitive area in the world for, for talent right now in the engineering space, um, even, yeah. even in like tech support space. How do you attract talent into an early stage company when, you know, you've got all the big boys throwing money at them and throwing perks at them? Yeah, it's difficult. Um, it's, you know, I can't lie. It's very difficult. The engineers, especially in engineering, I would say the ones that we need are peer-to-peer -peer engineers. So you would find them at companies like WhatsApp, who got acquired by Facebook. Right. And so they're all like in Facebook or Google, and they make a lot of money, right? It's, it's hard to deny that. What, what I think we have to do, again, is, you know, focus on what we're trying to do. I'll, you know, you'd be, you'd be surprised. A lot of folks that have the ability and potential to make millions will look at us at, at Helium because our mission is unique. Our technology is crazy. It's on the verge of being crazy. Um, it's really cool, I would say. And so that the, the challenge of the work that we do, how new and bleeding edge it is, is a draw for some folks. Not for everyone, but certainly for some. 
Um, and that, and that's something that I think is part of our culture, especially being so, so sort of small, everyone's, everyone's got to buy into that. And so every, every person here is a salesperson for the company to attract talent. And, you know, and I think, you know, this early on, you always go through friends and family, right? Friends of friends. And that's sort of the network that you go through. It's no different. We're, we're trying to go through that. We're probably exhausting it now at this point. Um, but it's, it's not easy to compete against money. But I would argue that a lot of engineers um, do want to work on things that are cool. They don't want to just be you know, a cog in a wheel at Facebook or Google working on one little sliver of a thing if they can own the entire thing here at Helium. So sure. there, there is a plus or minus for that, of course. Hey, we, should get a, um, we should get a promo code for all of our listeners and just throw it down in the show notes. For sure. I'll, I'll do something like that? Sure we do. Yes, we fun, fun to have one just to see if we can actually um, generate a few um, a few buyers for you, a few a free installation hubs or whatever. It'd be cool. I also sure. I'll, I'll push it out to all of our members of the CO Alliance too, because a lot of them are in the tech space and are certainly in the innovator early adopter zone for sure. Yeah, um, when, when do you when would you publish this? When is it? It'll probably be live in around four weeks, three to four weeks. I can so, go if you've got a launch period at all. I can go faster if you need to. I can just accelerate it. But it's. I think we usually have a backlog of two weeks that they're working on the editing and post production. Got it. So that if it's if it's four weeks, we're talking like right before Christmas. Yeah. So if you could if you can move it up by like just three four days, I don't need a lot more time. I can give you like a hundred dollar off promo for you. I can. I'll move it forward. Yeah. Give us one that's so you can track it as well, so that we can yes. just for fun. But yeah, I'll move it up for you for sure. I'll talk to the team later. As soon as we Thank get you. off, I'll talk to the team. Great. What I can, I, I can just make it like COO one hundred or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Right. Let's do yeah. something like that. It's a great idea. Thank you. Do you want to go with that? Do you want to go COO one hundred? Yeah. Okay. Let's do that. That way, at least people that are listening to us right now know that that's the code COO one hundred, and we'll put it down yeah. in the show notes as well, and then. Um, I'll let our, our group know too. That's fantastic. And then I'll, I'll delay me ordering one right now as well. So I won't, I'll wait for my, save my hundred bucks too. For sure. UCO 100. <laughs> Covers my coffee. Um, yeah. all right. So what, what was it do you think that has, has, um, what is it that's keeping you? Because right now you're in an, in a stage that you could get poached. So what is it that keeps you attached to, I mean, certainly having the backing of 50 million is a, is a pretty big yeah. um, vote of confidence and you're in a, yeah. a growth company and certainly in an exciting space. What keeps you in the company? You know, it's, it's back again to the people. Um, I've brought and hired quite a few folks into the company. Cer certainly I've been asked and, you know, to consider uh, other, other roles, right. The, that, that's kind of ongoing and constant. Mm -hmm. Um, but a year ago, I would say, so just a year in, I got a call from a really good friend that I've worked with in the past. And he said, hey, look, I want you to come work for me, be my CMO. And I, uh, it's hard to turn him down because we, we know each other. We work well together. Um, he's a great leader. And I, I, for a moment, for a moment, considered, okay, well, maybe, maybe that's, that's a path for me. But what stopped me wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, it wasn't the money. It wasn't, you know, I, I don't, I don't think it was anything else, but the people that I hired into helium. Mm. And I thought to myself, if I leave, I wouldn't just let a mirror down, right. Or the board down. You let all that that's, down. that's certainly not great, but letting people that trust me and came to helium because I said it was the right move, letting them down 
I couldn't live with myself. Yeah. It, I just couldn't do that to them. It's not fair. It's not right. And I know if I were in their shoes, I would, I would be really mad. I would be really angry. This is one of the rare traits, I think, of the COO versus all the other C-level team is we feel this Im- immense connection to making the CEO's dream happen. And then we feel this immense connection to the people that we've recruited and put in place and the plan that we've put in place to make yep. the thing happen that we almost, we can't leave until we've done it because we're now, right. we're now completely attached to them, right? We're like the yes. true yin and yang in a partnership. Yes. Um, so how about yourself and your skills? So you, you were saying, look, I'm not the guy, I don't have the skills for this. So how have you had to grow over the last two years? I, I think, you know, it's funny. I think this skill that I had to pull out of, of, I guess, me and my history is the hustle. You know, I grew up in San Francisco most of my life. I grew up in the Tenderloin, Poconetti, which is not probably one of the first areas. Did you just call it the Tenderloin? It's called, yeah, the neighborhood's called the Tenderloin. Not the Tenderloin. The Tenderloin, yeah. Oh, I thought you called it Tinder, like, you know, the app. Oh, oh sorry, yeah. No, it's Tenderloin, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's where I grew up. And, and uh, I remember growing up, we were very poor. We didn't have much. And so if you wanted anything in life, you had to hustle. Hmm. like seriously hustle. Um, and I've lost a lot of that over, over the years, especially in, in corporate Silicon Valley world. Really? Um, I, I think so. Cause I think that was, that wasn't the way you, most people behave. There's sort of a way of behavior. You put on a shirt, put on some, some khakis or slacks and you got to talk a certain way. Um, and that, that created the shell probably over the years. And coming here, I've been able to rip the, all of the, the shell off and who I really am is, a hustler, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know how to say it. <laughs> it's not makes sense. probably what you expected. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. And I wouldn't have expected that as the answer. I would have expected that that was already a part of the mm-hmm. DNA of living in the, in, in the Bay area, living in the Tenderloin. It, it, it certainly was. Um, and it still is apparently. Um, so I was, I'm able to draw those skills mm-hmm. out of, you know, when you think about what hustling means for me, at least it's not taking no for an answer, mm-hmm. finding ways to make things happen. You know, not depending on somebody else, but you got to do it yourself. And so that kind of do it yourself, making it happen is, is it's in every, it's in all of us. I think just going to have the right situation to pull it out. It's that, it's that tenacity and that, um, the narcissism that the CEOs often have to have, right? I think it's a balance of where like narcissism, maybe it's just becoming narcissism, right? It's like the tenacity and the grit and the, um, the drive and the desire just before it hits narcissism. Yes. Because it becomes unhealthy at that point. <laughs> it, it, it does. But that, that, those, those traits or those skills, I think are a must for any, any smart, like any start, startup, any small company um, without a whole lot of resources. You now have- you've, got some, you've got some big, big VC money behind you, but also some big name VCs themselves. What's it like working with them? What have you learned working with them? Um, yeah. Has, has there anything been hard about it? Yeah, uh, it's uh, I joke about this. I'm not sure if Vinod's gonna kill me, um, but Vinod, uh, Vinod has probably been a, a very crucial icon in our, in our existence here. He, he has, unparalleled respect for founders. Um, I can, I, I see it. He, he treats Amir um, like his own son and he talks to him that way and coaches him that way. But when he, you know, after he recruited me and got me on board, 
I, I wasn't in that. I'm not, I'm not a founder. So I'm, I don't have that status. He's incredibly hard on me and I appreciate it because it's taking, it's taken him like boot camp with Vinod for a year for me to adjust out of my corporate shell and get into the hustle. Because I see, I see Vinod Kosala as probably the best hustler I've ever met in my life. Extraordinary. He's got a great reputation. Extraordinary. <clears throat> Extraordinary. He knows everybody. And he's got a great reputation, as you said. But he is a mastermind. Mastermind at building successful companies. You just have to let him coach you. Mm. If you're willing to mm. let him coach you and you're, you're trainable, you take his feedback. He's not always right, of course. But you just take it. You make it your own. It's very helpful. So he's been very helpful for me. So I actually, I was on a, a stage yesterday to 550 CFOs that have all graduated from MIT's Sloan School of Business. And, and I was talking to them about how um, it was always hard for me to take feedback, to take criticism. Um, yeah. And Tim Ferriss had actually coached me on this. We were, we've been friends forever. And uh, we were at Burning Man together and we were talking about, about negative criticism that we get from fans and positive feedback we get from fans. And he said, both of them are crazy. Like, you know, don't listen to the positive raving fans. They got way too much free time and they're all nuts. And, and all the negative ones have got way too much free time too. How have you been able to take the constructive criticism from Vinod and, and embrace that and learn from that and not feel beat up? <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's hard because in the beginning, not knowing him that well, after like the first board meeting, it's hard. It, you take it personal and you're like, oh, geez, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I was right. I'm not right for the job. Um, but, but it's, it, Amir really helped in this case where Amir's attitude is, you know, Vinod or anybody else, right. Can, can tell us what they think. It's up to us to, to, to take the parts that we think are most important. And so Amir has told me over the years that he just sort of lets Vinod go through his, you know, process. And, and then it's up to us, you know, to pick out the pieces that we think we need. Um, cause Vinod doesn't, he's not in it every day, right? He, he's a super smart guy, great strategy, great mastermind, but then you have to for, sort of figure out how to execute. And so taking his, taking nuggets of what he says and then executing is how we've approached it. Like, you know, like the whole 10 city thing, that was Vinod. Vinod's like, Hey, you got to stop doing too much. Mm. You're doing too much. Do less of, do less, but do more of the less is what he, exactly what he said. Do less, but do more of the less. Get the 10 cities. Go nail those 10 cities and get people on the network in those 10 cities. That's all you have to do now. And I'm like, okay, right? it's great feedback. And, and you, you take sort of nuggets of that and you execute it uh, in the way that is best fit for us. That's, that's been great. And then I would say a contrast to that, which is another great group of guys, which is Multicoin Capital, Kyle and Tushar are the partners there. They're different from Vinod. Vinod's like, I would say Vinod's like the head coach, like Coach Gruden or something of the Raiders. And Kyle and Tushar are the offensive and defensive line coaches. Mm. Um, they're very, they get a lot more execution oriented. They're younger guys, super smart, extremely helpful on the execution side. So we get Vinod's feedback, we create our strategy and start to execute. And I've got Kyle and Tushar there helping me execute essentially. It's amazing. It's such That's a awesome. great combination of, of, of VCs. Um, love working with these guys. I would, I would absolutely want them, you know, helping us, supporting us in any company I'm in. 
Well, I would, really I would start making lists of all the notes and ideas they give you, and that'll become your book when you're done because the, <laughs> the, the life lessons you're pulling on. So one last thing I'd like to pull from you. What's the, the one thing you said now, you know, you're the, you're the father of two kids and you're yeah. juggling like the family and, and business stuff. But when you were, let's say, 22 years old and you were just getting started in your career, what's some word, some advice that you wish you had known then that now you know to be true, but you wish you'd known at 22? You know, I, I ran fast. I was all about hustling, running fast, get ahead, right? Get to the next level, whatever that may be, whether it's the corporate level with titles or starting a company and selling the company and making a lot of money. I, I would say the, the thing that I probably didn't have enough of earlier on was self-awareness and the things you say that impact others. Hmm. As, as fast as you want to go, you, I made so many mistakes. I've said so many wrong things that probably were hurtful and unintentional, but at the same time, I was going too fast. Yeah. And I remember when, back then when I was going fast, um, I, I believe it was like John Thompson probably told me once, slow down, buddy, like slow down. And his point to me was, look, you, you, you make really bad decisions when you're running hastily and yeah. not, not having full awareness. Slow down enough to collect data, get full awareness to make the best decision possible. I, and I think, yeah. No, go ahead. So I, I think that's for me, the one thing I would impart to everyone that's listening if you're a young entrepreneur, 22 to someone that's just hitting their stride. It's okay. It's okay not to be first all the time. It's okay to build some awareness so you don't hurt others along the way, but certainly so that you don't make catastrophic errors. To, to really assess the situation. Well, I like to say that you, you've, you've done stuff that's hurt people as well. And I, I think back yeah. to my own career where I've done the same thing where I've said stuff. I'm like, oh, fuck, it's those words you can't take back. But I think those that's are right. that's, that's that equally important lesson with our kids and with our spouse as well, right? Is just to, to slow down and be mindful and to realize that, you know, we can, I've always said that the CEO is really the chief energizing officer. And, and they have to look to raise the energy of the group. But with one word or with one sentence, we can destroy the energy for weeks or for months yes. or forever. So, Frank, thank you so much for um, sharing with us today. Really, really appreciate it. Um, shared some really great ideas. So, Frank Mom, the CEO for Helium, thanks for being with us on the Second Command podcast. Thank you, Cameron. My pleasure. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.